So we're kicking off a brand new series today. It'll go through the summer for the most part. And we're really focusing on King David. And King David, a fascinating story, a lot of things we can pull out of his life, the faith of his life. But we also recognize throughout the story of David, we get introduced to really the heart of this king, the heart of David. And we're going to see God not just move in his heart, but the people around him as well. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have this morning. Thank you so much for the words that we're going to read. God, I pray that those words are not just words on a page, but God, would you speak to us? God, would you move in our own hearts? Would you challenge us, convict us, and encourage us? Speak, Lord, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I turned 16 years old, uh, like many of you, I received not just car keys, but what I would say were the keys to the kingdom. It finally happened, right? 16 years old, you get keys, and keys are more than just keys to the car. It's keys to freedom. You can do whatever you want to do. You can go wherever you want to go-ish for the most part. I learned that pretty quickly. I got the keys to my kingdom, and the first place I went, I will always remember this. It is such a fond memory, Wendy's. (laughs) Out of everything you could go to as a 16-year-old kid that finally was given car keys, I could do anything. I could go anywhere. The Wendy's down the street. So I'll go to Wendy's, and it was the best, best hands-down junior bacon cheeseburger I'd ever had because I drove myself there and I was there all by myself. Thinking back, that doesn't sound so great, does it? Eating at Wendy's all by yourself. But I did learn that even though those keys to the kingdom allowed me to do just about whatever I wanted, I also learned very quickly that those keys could be taken away. There's still a curfew. There's still speed limits. There's still rules to follow. So even though I was given the keys to my little kingdom, I still had a king. I still had rules. I still had authorities that I was underneath. King David, we're going to, like I said, we're going to be studying King David. And we see that, yes, he had the keys to the kingdom, but he was still underneath the king. And that's the same for every single one of us, that we all, in some ways, are kings and queens. We have our own little kingdoms that we are over. We have people that we're surrounded with, but we have some people that we're over. We have things that we rule over in our homes, in our little area of our community, and in our own lives. So yes, in some ways, we're kings with kingdoms, but like King David, we are still under the king. So what I'm hoping to accomplish, not just today, but through this study on the life of David, is if we could really get into David's heart We're told that David was a man after God's own heart, but what made that true? What was it about David that gave him the heart that God said, now that's what I'm looking for? So we want to pay attention to the heart of David, but we also want to pay attention to the priorities of the king, of King Jesus. We're going to see the priorities of God throughout David's life. Sometimes David did some great things, sometimes not so great things. And we'll be able to see his heart and his faith along the way but also see the priorities of God. So as we go through today, look for that. Look for the faith of David, specifically around his heart, based on his heart, but then also pay attention to the priorities of God. What does God care most about? If you've got your Bible, be in 1 Samuel, that's Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
we're going to start. And before we really get even to meet David, we get a little bit of a context with what David is walking into. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we are going to start in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, make sure you, you grab one. Got a stack of them out in the lobby. That is our gift to you. 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Here's the scene. Here's the context. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a, a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. So Samuel's obviously afraid. Well, take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to make the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. Now, real quick, there's two names and then a weird word in this section here. Samuel, Saul, and then anointed. Let me explain those real quick. Samuel is a prophet of God. So his whole purpose in life right now is to go and speak God's word to the people. Specifically, part of Samuel's job is to anoint kings. Choose the king of Israel. That's who Samuel is. Saul, we're introduced briefly to King Saul, where he is the first king of Israel. And Samuel chose him as king through, through God's anointing through God telling him who to choose. And Saul started out as a great king, a good king, a godly king, but started to disobey God, became a bad king and even a dangerous king. So what we're seeing here is Samuel is upset. He's disappointed that the first king didn't work out. That's how it starts. The Lord said to Samuel, you've mourned Saul long enough. In other words, Samuel was so distraught, so disappointed, so discouraged that this first king that he picked hasn't worked out very well. Now that word anointed, I said it's a weird word. That's not a word we use very often at all. Anointing literally just means to choose or to set apart. So when Samuel would anoint a king, he's choosing who is going to be that king. Oftentimes it would be used by pouring olive oil on their head, marking them in some way so that then they would be set apart. It's literally just a, a symbol or a little bit of, of, of a ceremony to set somebody apart for God's purposes. Now, what I want you to pay attention, though, is although Samuel is disappointed, God has already moved on. And I think there's something there where Samuel is so upset and so discouraged because this first king that was supposed to be great hasn't worked out. But God is like, hey, Samuel, you mourned long enough. Let's get going. There's another king that I'm going to present to you. This isn't the end of it. It's not the worst thing ever. It's going to be fine, but you've got to keep moving forward. I think what's fascinating for me, at least thinking through this, is we fall into that same boat with Samuel sometimes. We had this dream, we had this idea, we had this hope, and then it doesn't work out. And we can be discouraged, we can be disappointed, but at some point we do have to keep moving forward as we follow God. And I think that's what God is trying to do for Samuel. He's trying to pull him out of not just discouragement and disappointment, but it feels like Samuel might have even crossed a threshold into despair. And here's how you have to understand disappointment and discouragement from despair. Despair is a complete lack of hope. There's no more hope. And we can be discouraged and we can be disappointed that things didn't work out the way that we wanted, but at some point we continue to follow God because he is our hope. So let me just say this. This isn't the main point here, 
but don't let disappointment lead to despair. That's not what we're going to see throughout the whole thing, but I think there's just the whole story of David starts with Samuel in despair. And if Samuel did not continue to trust God and his plans, we would have never met David. We just sang the song, Waymaker, that even when we don't see it, he's working. Even when we don't feel it, he's still moving and working behind the scenes and in our lives. Even though we may be discouraged, don't allow it to move into despair. Verse four, so here's what Samuel does. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. Anytime Samuel shows up, you gotta wonder, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is this a good word from the Lord or is this a bad word from the Lord? Wouldn't that be great if that's how you were always met with people trembling? Oh no, what are they actually gonna say? So that's what Samuel's walking into. What's wrong, they asked, do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them all to sacrifice too. Now remember, the whole purpose of Samuel showing up is so that God could point out who the next king is going to be. God has not told him a specific name. He just said, go, one of these sons of Jesse, one of them will be the next king. So verse six, when they arrived, Samuel took one look, just one look at Eliab and thought, surely, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He gets there, he meets Jesse, he meets his sons, and he meets the firstborn, the oldest, the strongest, Eliab, and one look is all that it took. And Samuel was confident. Samuel was certain. He was sure that this would be the next king. It is just one look is all that it took for Samuel to think he knew who this next king was going to be. Now, we don't know this for sure, so like forgive some of the speculation here, uh, but there's a lot of Bible scholars and some archaeologists over the, man, years and years that have dug into not just the text, but man, everything from cave paintings and trying to figure out maybe who these Israelites were early on in this line of David and his sons. And we think, not positive, this is just, specula uh, this is just speculating at this point, but we think we have a picture of Eliab of what he actually looked like. It's exactly what Samuel saw and looked at him one look and said, that is the king. It's everything that a king should be. So even though we don't know that for sure, I'm pretty confident that's exactly what Eliab would have looked like. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. However, some of you know this part of the story, verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, which that is my favorite passage in the whole scriptures. I hold on to that passage. When Becky and I first started dating, I said, you want to know my favorite passage that you should hold to heart? This one right here. Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. No, people judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at, what is it? At the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. I love that God had to step in. So here's Samuel, a man of God, a prophet of God that knows the word of God, and he's about to anoint the wrong king. So if that doesn't cause us some hesitation, I don't know what would. If Samuel was judging by the outward appearance, of course we are too. Of course we do that. We all, are, have, we all have a bend towards the judging on the outward appearance. We're drawn towards the outward appearance, the power, the fame, the appearance, the money. 
the stature. And here God had to step in and say, no, Samuel, I know he looks the part, but he does not have the right heart. So then verse eight, then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemaiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all of seven, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. One after another. They looked the part. They looked like they could be king. They looked like they should be king. And every single one of those seven, God said, they looked the part but they don't have the heart. They look the part, but they do not have the heart. This had to have been a little bit awkward for, for Samuel at this point because he was told to come to Jesse's house. He was told by God that one of his sons would be the next king, and he's just said no to every one of these sons that was standing in front of him. And notice that God didn't tell Samuel who was gonna be king before he got there. It would have been a whole lot easier, in my opinion, if God said, now, Samuel, you're going to go to Jesse's house and you're going to ask for David. Just ask for David. Don't worry about any of the other sons. I know they're going to look the part, but they don't have the heart. So just straight up ask for David. But that doesn't happen. And I kind of like that it doesn't happen because Samuel had to go through the process. Samuel had to go through the step by step of God saying, nope, not that one. No, not that one. No, not that one. Seven different times. For me, that's how God, I at least see, he leads me personally. Is that, nope, not that direction. Keep walking, Brian. Nope, not that direction. Keep walking. Nope, not that one. Keep moving. And it's not, we know the end result at the beginning. It's going through it one step at a time. And I see that's how God leads us often. Is God leads us, leads us one step at a time. Not with, here's the end result, just ask for David. It's not, I'm going to take you through the process one step at a time where we have to, because here's what's great about that. We have to keep listening every step of the way, don't we? Samuel had to keep listening to God with every single one of those sons that stepped in front of him. But it had to have been awkward because he said no to all these different sons now. So Samuel's like, uh, I think there's got to be at least another son somewhere. So verse 11, then Samuel asked, are these all the sons that you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Isn't this, I don't know if any, I'm not going to make you ask, I'm not going to ask or make you raise your hands, but you've got to feel bad for the youngest here. Like, he's not even invited to this whole ordeal. He's forgotten about. He's out in the fields. Like, the family didn't even think that it was necessary for him to even be looked at as a possibility. Like, that had to have been a little bothersome for David on some level. That every other of the sons, all of his other brothers, at least had an audience in front of Samuel. But they didn't even think David was worth inviting to stand before him. Now, I told you we're going to be looking at the heart and some qualities, attributes of David. We get two right here. These two attributes make him one of God's favorites, so to speak, but it also is what makes his family disqualify him for even getting an audience with Samuel. Here they are, the two. 
We're told that he's a shepherd. He's out watching the flocks. And we're also told that he's the youngest. Do you notice Jesse, his dad, doesn't even call him by name? He just says, well, there's the youngest out in the fields. That's a little harsh, isn't it? Oh, no, yeah, my youngest son, David. No, it's, well, the youngest. Now, the youngest there doesn't, in the original word there, hakaton, doesn't just relate to an age, right? It also could be used to describe the unimportant or the insignificant. So it's almost as if Jesse has said, well, yeah, the unimportant one is out in the fields, but we didn't bother him by even coming here. The most insignificant one is out there, but we didn't think he needed to be here for you. That's the tone of this line. The youngest is out in the field, so we know he's the youngest. He's viewed by his family on some level as unimportant, as insignificant, and we're told that he's a shepherd. He's just a shepherd. Samuel, he, he tends to sheep. He doesn't deserve to lead people. All he does is watch animals out in the field. He has no business being a king over a nation. Two qualities that his family used to disqualify him. Those are the two qualities that God said, oh, but that's what I'm looking for. He's the youngest and he's a shepherd. Verse 12, so Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. Out of all the other sons that stepped in front of Samuel, this is the one that God said, that's him because he has the right heart. And we see this throughout scripture, that God chooses the unlikely to do the unimaginable. He's looking for the unlikely. No, they don't necessarily look the part, but they have the right heart. No, they don't necessarily look like they can do what I'm asking them to do, but they depend on me. That's what we begin to see. The man after God's own heart, David, this young shepherd that nobody thought could or should be king, he's the one that God has chosen. Verse 13, so David stood there, which I'd like to point out, that's the first time we're told his name. We've gotten the, some of the other brothers' names. We know Jesse, we know Samuel, and finally, verse 13, it's after he is anointed, we are told his name. So as David stood, th stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil and brought it and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. That last part there, the moment that he was anointed, the spirit of God rushed over him. The spirit of God moved into him. Did this moment forever change David's life? Absolutely. Does he now have the spirit of God dwelling in him? Yes. Is his life about to get a whole lot easier now that he's king? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Starting at this point, it would still be about 15 years before David actually took the throne. So you have this weird limbo space that David lived in for about 15 years. I'm chosen as king by God. I'm anointed as king I know I'm going to be the next king. Other people know that I am to be the next king, but there's still a king that's king. So he lives in this weird space of knowing he's king and chosen as king, but there's still another king that is reigning. That spirit of God that moved and changed his life, but it was also going to make his life a lot more difficult. Because also in that 15 years, it's not just waiting to get on the throne. He will be chased 
hunted down and, and truly tried to be killed for those 15 years by the current King Saul. So that moment where God's spirit moved into him, it changed his life, but it also made his life a lot more difficult. And I say that because for us today, you might ne have never have been anointed in the sense of what we're reading here, but according to the New Testament, you have been. We have the spirit of God living and dwelling in us. We read that again and again throughout the New Testament on how when Jesus died, he not just took our sins away, but he placed his spirit in us. So in the Old Testament, before Jesus, anointing was something special that God specifically chose this person or that person, the Davids, so to speak. But once Jesus came, died on the cross, came back to life again, he has chosen all of us. He took our sins away and he placed his spirit in us so that the power of him lives in us. And does that change our lives? Absolutely. Does he want to move and use us? Absolutely. Does it make our life easier? No. Similar to David, when the spirit of God dwells and moves and lives in us, it doesn't always mean life is easier, but it means that he is with us and he's walking with us, and he's giving us the strength we need, and he's producing the fruits of the Spirit within us. So we see that with David, and again, we'll, through the course of our study, we'll see how the life of David is a little bit more difficult because God chose him, but it's totally worth it. So he's now chosen as king. He is the next king. What is he going to do as king? Just imagine if you're in David's shoes just for a moment. What do you do now that you are officially anointed king? You start to probably go through, oh, I'm going to change this. I'm going to get rid of this, and we're going to do this instead of that, and that person's got to go, and I'm going to bring in these people. We automatically have our own agenda that we start to think through, what we would do as king. What I want you to see is what David does. In verse 14, we see a shift of the story. It moves away from David and goes back to King Saul. Now, like I said, he had disobeyed God, he had become very dangerous, and he is currently, if you read a little bit more in context, he's being tormented by this spirit. So he is just not in a good headspace whatsoever. And so some of Saul's officials said, Saul, you're being tormented by this spirit. We need to find somebody that could play music for you that would help ease your mind and your soul. So Saul says, that's fine, let's do that, verse 16. So let's find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music and you will soon be well again. Verse 17, all right, Saul said, find someone who plays well and bring him here. So they go and find David. David had a reputation of not just being the youngest and a shepherd, but he also had a reputation of being able to play the harp, of being a musician. So look at what King David does as his first act of we, that we have recorded in scripture, his first act as king, verse 21 so David went to Saul and began serving him. That is not what I would have done as king. That is not what I would have done as king. Again, we have our agendas. We have our plans. We have what we would do, what we would change. King David goes and serves King Saul. Even though Saul is being removed as king as we speak, and God has now chosen and anointed David as the new future king. King David still served. Man, don't miss that. David's going to be a leader, and we're going to see him grow as a leader. But before he leads, he serves. 
He serves Saul. He serves the king that he's actually replacing. He serves King Saul, who's eventually going to be the one, as we see later on in the story. Saul's the one that tries to kill David. And again, David steps in to serve, not to take over, not to push him out, not to take control or to take charge. He came to serve. Remember, David didn't necessarily look the part, but he had the heart. This young shepherd boy that nobody else thought should or could be king shows his king-like qualities by serving If you want to flip with me, there's a a great snapshot of what we just read in Psalm chapter 78. The psalmist here uh, takes what we just read, the story of David being chosen as king, and summarizes it and kind of smashes it together in just a few verses. I want to read them because there's so much in here that solidifies the heart of David, but also gives us some things to take away as well. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72, the psalmist writes this about this moment that David became king. He chose his servant, David. Notice how he describes David already. He chose his servant, David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took David from tending the lambs and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. He cared for them with a true heart and led them with skillful hands. Now, If you read closely, you'll notice that the psalmist here describes David in three main ways. He calls him a servant right out of the get-go. He calls him a shepherd, saying this is what he did before he was called up. But then he also calls him a leader. He led him, led them with skillful hands. So I would say the same to us today. If we want to grow as grow our hearts, develop a heart where we might not look the part, but we want to have the right heart, the first I would say is develop your skills as a leader. Meaning what David was able to do, it says that he led them with skillful hands. He was good at his job. He was good at the, he was, he developed the gifts that God had given him. So I would say the same for us, develop your skills as a leader. The gifts and talents and abilities that God has given you, develop those, grow those, use those for the good of other people. It's not just he was a good shepherd. It wasn't just he was good as a musician, but he used those skills for the good of others. He led them with skillful hands. What God has given you, use those, develop those gifts, talents, and abilities for the good of other people. We also see that he cared for them with a true heart. Now I would tell you, care for people like a shepherd. Care for people like a shepherd. In fact, that, that first part, he cared for them, that phrase in the original language is one word. And that one word is shepherded. <laughs> Sounds weird to say it that way, doesn't it? It's not just I'm a shepherd, but I'm shepherding other people. He shepherded his people. He cared for them. He loved them. He looked out for them. He helped them. He cared for his own people with a true heart, a sincere heart, an undivided heart. No agenda other than just to care for, to shepherd people. Begin to think of the people that are in your circle of influence, the people that you care about, the people that God has placed in your life. How can you shepherd them with a true and sincere heart? And lastly, it's what we see at the very beginning. He chose his servant, David. The king who served, to serve with a humble heart, to serve willingly. When we serve, we don't serve because of the other person's heart. 
right? It's not based on whether they deserve it or not. We serve because of our own heart and because of the posture of our own heart. So like David, to have a humble heart that serves, not because the other person deserves it, but because we have the heart of a servant. Have a humble heart. That begins to give us a little bit of insight into the heart of David. He served, he was a shepherd, he cared for other people, and he developed his own skills and used that for the good of others. Now, as we go through the story of David, not just for today, but especially for today as well, is the goal is not to become more like David at all. Like, I hope you don't walk out of here like, man, I need to be a little bit more like David. I mean, yes, let's serve like David. Let's have a heart like David. Let's continue to care and shepherd people like David. Let's develop our skills like David. That's fine. But the goal, the end goal is not to be more like David, right? We're Christians. So we are to be more like Christ, not be more like David. But what's great about when we see David, David is a blurry picture of the king. If you've got younger kids, if they've ever drawn a picture of you, does it look like you? We should say probably no. (laughs) It doesn't really look like us. There's some resemblances But it doesn't really look too, too much like us. But it is a blurry picture. It's an incomplete picture of someone else. And that's really what David is. David is an incomplete picture of the true king, of the real king, of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that picture we get in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And this is who we are supposed to model our lives after. This is who we are trying to be more and more like. Verse 5, Philippians, out of Philippians chapter 2. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and as a servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the very name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king, to the glory of God the Father. That is what we want our heart to look like. Humble, a servant, a shepherd, and even skillful. We continue to strive each and every day to be more and more like Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Love this last part where it said, and at the very name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That requires us to be humble and every tongue declare that he is Lord or he is king. So yes, we all have our keys to our own little kingdoms, so to speak. We are in charge of our lives. We have freedoms and responsibilities. And so even though, yes, we are kings and queens over our little kingdoms, have you humbled yourself beneath the king of kings? Have you declared that Jesus Christ is Lord of all lords? Because even the kings serve a king. Let me pray. God, thank you so much 
for serving us, not because we deserved it, but because you have the heart of a servant. Thank you for caring for us like a shepherd cares for his sheep. Thank you for showing us what it looks like to lead others. I pray that we would not just study the life of David as, as historical, that we wouldn't just study it as a great role model, but we would study the life of David and see his life point to the true king, you, Jesus. As we reflect on the parts of our life that we are ultimately responsible for, being kings over our little kingdoms, would we be willing to humble ourselves beneath you? Humble ourselves under your lordship, under your authority, and declare that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Continue to grow in our hearts what you care about. Help us to become more and more like you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.